This episode is brought to you by the Five Day Money Challenge. Get your stuff together with money and increase your confidence in just five days. Save your seat at WhitneyHanson.com slash money challenge and join in on the fun. Hello and welcome to the Money Nerds Podcast, where owning a calculator, budgeting your money, and having a net worth is actually cool. I'm your host, Whitney Hansen, and each week I'll be chatting with inspiring people to learn their secrets to financial success. Now let's dive into the show. Hey guys, I am so stoked today because it's time for a Q&A episode. We haven't done one of these in what feels like a million years. So let's go ahead and dive in. I have one, two, three, four, five questions today. I've got my notebook in front of me and my notes and I'm ready to party. Okay, first question comes from Britt. And actually, I've gotten this same exact question in multiple variations. Every time I post anything about furniture flipping, I always get this question or some variation of it. Britt says, I've been redoing furniture for a while now and have considered flipping an item without doing work to it, but I feel guilty taking an item someone has offered for super cheap and making a large profit. Sometimes I feel like people think they are giving it to someone in need, especially worried of them seeing me resell it online. Suggestions slash insight on this concern of mine. Okay, Britt, I have so many questions or so many suggestions, (laughs) so many questions, so many questions too, but this is such an interesting thing. So let's break this down into two parts because the first part that I'm overall hearing is a fear of what if they see me resell the item? Okay, now let's dive into that piece first. What if they do? So freaking what? (laughs) Like really though, so what? These people, you're probably never going to see them again. And even if you do and they comment, oh my gosh, remember when you bought my dresser and you resold it for a large profit? Again, so what? We don't live our lives based on what other people think. It's just not a good way to go. Now, here's the other piece too, that large profit piece when you feel guilty for buying something for cheaper and reselling for more. This is fascinating because this is business 101 when it comes to product-based businesses. What this tells me is that it's, it's really interesting. Think about it this way. If you go to the grocery store and you buy, I don't know, a box of cereal, you buy some freaking Fruit Loops, okay? So you buy your Fruit Loops at the, at the grocery store. That grocery store, they made a profit. They bought that for cheaper, they marked it up, and they're making a profit off of that. Now, it could be argued that food is truly a necessity, and is that actually ethical or not? Like, I would actually have more of a guilt thing when it comes to something that's truly essential versus something where people choose to spend their money on whatever the heck they want. Like, a dresser is not truly a necessity. It's a nice to have. It's not a necessity for a lot of people. And so that's why it's so interesting, because at the end of the day, all all businesses make profit. They have to. And there's no reason why you don't have to make a profit off of something just because you bought it for cheaper. Like that's the other piece. The other point in your, your question that I want to dive into a little bit too, was this concept of, I feel guilty because I feel like they were giving it away or get doing a a super cheap price because they were hoping it would go to somebody in need. And that is a total BS story that you're telling yourself. Here's how I know. I've been flipping furniture for over a year now. And what I can say for certain is every time I have found a piece of furniture that was a really, really great deal, 
it was when I picked up the furniture and I asked them why they were getting rid of it. And I, I mean, I'm too conversational when I pick up this stuff. I need to be a lot more transactional so that I move faster. But when I talked to people, they were saying, oh, I just wanted to get rid of it. I just wanted to get rid of it. I was sick of holding on to it and I just wanted to get rid of it. It has nothing to do with going to somebody in need. If it were truly going to somebody in need, it would be a different sales approach. They would either donate it they would find it through like a church and they would find out people that are truly in need and, and need free furniture. They would do something differently. They wouldn't sell the furniture. When people are selling the furniture, it's because they want to get rid of it. Now, here's the other thing too. If you go to a thrift store, that was all donated furniture. So when they're selling it, they're making a profit off of it too. Now, if you choose to turn around and make an even bigger profit, there is no shame or guilt in that. There's no one sitting there saying, the furniture flipping police saying, you cannot do that. That's unethical. That doesn't mean anything. Now, here's the other piece too. You, in your question, hit on something that I personally used to struggle with too. I really seriously did. I had to ask Tony about this. I'm like, did I struggle with this? He's like, of course you did. <laughs> so here's what I mean. When you were talking in the first part of your question, you were saying that you have been redoing furniture and putting some work and painting and just like refinishing the furniture over the years and that you inherently feel more comfortable selling that at a higher profit because you had to do some work to it versus just taking a piece and relisting it. Now that is something I struggled with too, because I struggled with, and I still do. I inherently believe that money comes from hard work and that's not true. Yes, you have to work hard to get money, but money comes from value. Money comes from value, not from hard work. So if I put 50 hours into a dresser and I sell it for $150 profit, or I put zero hours into a dresser and sell it for $150 profit, it really doesn't matter because it's all about the value of the dresser. Now you're not taking somebody for a ride. You're not like nickel and diming them. You're not just forcing them into paying a higher price. The market tells you what they'll pay. And there's been times where I thought something was worth a lot more and the market said, no, it's not. And they paid quite a bit less. That happens. So you are not strong arming anybody into paying more than the, the item is actually worth. They will pay what they think it is worth. And that is not your job to determine what the value is. It's the market's job. So those are my thoughts on furniture flipping and you are not alone. A lot of people have those fears. I had some of those fears when I first started doing this too. And ultimately what I've decided is that fear was only holding me back from making additional money and from hitting some of my financial goals through side hustling. And it wasn't worth it. So I hope that helps you. And I hope more than anything, it gives you that permission to make a profit, go make that money, no shame in that. And if you make a profit because somebody was just trying to lazily get rid of something as quickly as possible, that's frankly not your problem, but I hope that helps. Okay. Let's dive into the next question. This one, this one was a good one. I, I saw this question initially in the Facebook group and I loved it so much that I thought this is a really good podcast question too. This question comes from Kara. She says, how much money should you give as a wedding gift? I'm going to two weddings soon, one for a good friend and one for my brother. I keep hearing I need to give between 200 and $300, which seems too high. When Googling this, I saw numbers from 75 to $700 for siblings. What have you done? Okay, I have strong opinions on this. I don't know if I've ever vocalized this formally. Any wedding, any event, any holiday that's overly commercialized and comes with this like obliged feeling of giving, 
kind of irks me. I don't, I don't buy into that. I think if you choose to give, that's awesome, but I don't believe you should ever feel obligated to give money or a gift. Like that is not at all. And if people, if people make you feel that way, those are not the right kind of people to have in your life, frankly. So let's talk through this. There's a couple factors when I am going to a wedding, if I'm going to give a gift that I will take into consideration. First and foremost, do I have to travel? Is there travel costs? Are there hotel costs? Is there any type of costs that come out of my own pocket that I have to pay for in order to attend this really special day for people? If that's the case, I'm not going to go broke attending a wedding. Like, that's not the right direction, nor is a wedding's goal to make money off of the attendees. That's kind of a BS approach too. When I think we've all been to weddings where that seems like that was the case where it's like, let's just see how much we can get out of all of our attendees. I cannot stand that stuff. I cannot stand it. Like when I love weddings, I love love. I think it's so great. And when I attend them, I ball like a baby the whole time. I'm all about that, but you do not have to go broke in order to celebrate love in a relationship. You are there to celebrate with a couple. You're not there to give them everything that they need. That's just not the way it goes. And some of this is very cultural. So of course, like take that with a grain of salt. This is my own cultural perception coming through. But one of the things that I think about is, again, do I have to travel? The next piece is, do they have a wish list on Amazon, on Bed Bath & Beyond, Target, like wherever the heck they're registered? Do they have a wish list? Now, this might sound a little bit weird, but I will actually choose the cheapest gift possible. <laughs> I do. Not always. It depends on who it is, of course. But if it's somebody I like rarely talk to and they invite me to their wedding, uh, no, I'm not just going to go give you a $300 Dyson vacuum for coming to your wedding. Like, no, I don't have to pay a ticket price to get into your wedding day. Like, that's just crazy. So let me give you context. When my little brother got married um, last year, his wedding required me to spend almost $400 in like a dress, in uh, hotel costs, gas to get up there. Like it definitely cost me a little bit of money to attend. Like it's my brother. Of course I would attend his wedding 50,000 times over, but it still cost me an arm and a leg, not an arm and a leg. That's maybe a little bit too <laughs> extreme $400. Where am I going to get that kind of money? Anyways. So it was, it was an expensive wedding to attend for him. I actually did a $100 cash gift and that was sufficient. Again, he is a grown ass man. He's 20-something years old. He has a full-time job. His wife has a full-time job. They have a house. They do not need financial contributions. They're not starting off 16 years old and getting married and trying to figure it out. Like, that's not their situation. They have the financial means to pay for stuff themselves. So whenever I look at wedding attending, I always think of that too. This is not a time weddings historically have been very different, right? It was people get married very young. They don't have anything. It's a nice little like step up of like, here, let us help you out. If you are 30 something years old or in your late twenties and you have a great career, you are doing just fine. You don't need attendees to be giving you gifts. Like the, again, my own perspective. So that's how I view weddings. As you can see, it's a very potentially biased uh, view, but that's what I believe. I don't know. And here's a trend I would love to see more of. I wish more people, because I've talked to so many people that have gone into debt to attend a wedding, like literally have gone into debt 
on a gift, on a dress, on a tux, like whatever the heck it might be on travel costs to go spend this time with somebody that they cared about. When realistically you can care about somebody and you don't have to go into debt to celebrate their love. If you can't financially afford it, you have to look out for yourself. Like you have no obligation to anybody but yourself and your immediate family to take care of that. Like that is your number one priority. Your friend from high school that's getting married, if you can't afford to go, too damn bad, don't go, like it's okay. But the other piece that I would love to see more of a trend with is I would love if you are hosting a wedding, please keep this in mind. There is so much financial pressure when it comes to being a guest at a wedding. It, it comes with a lot of pressure financially and realistically people cannot always afford to attend. And so make it easy on them. Like seriously, if you're in a good financial position, like so Tony and I, when we do get married, we've already determined we don't need crap. Like I don't need money. I don't need a new blender. I don't need a Dyson vat. Like I'm okay. I'm a grown woman who can take care of herself financially. I don't need gifts to help me with that. So one of the things that we're going to be doing is a giftless wedding. If we have a big ceremony, which I don't think we will, but if we choose to, I don't want people to bring gifts. And I know for some people that really hurts their feelings because they want to. Great. Here's my favorite charities. Go donate to them. But at the end of the day, I wish there was more of a, a push to almost acknowledge that it's an expensive endeavor for even attendees and keep it simple. They're there to celebrate your love. They're not there to go bankrupt. So anyway, keep that in the back of your mind when you do host a wedding and if you're attending, do the best that you can. If you choose to get a gift, that's awesome. If you can't, leave a really thoughtful card about what you care about for from the, the bride and bride or the bride and groom or the groom and groom. Like, do whatever you can for the, the loving couple and see how it goes. Like, don't go broke over this stuff, though. I sound like the Scrooge of weddings. <laughs> As I'm re-listening to this, I'm like, oh, gosh, I sound like such a jerk. But you know what? That's okay. It's all right. I've got your best interest at heart. Okay. Next question comes from Jasmine. Jasmine said, if for some reason you lost your job today, what is your plan for surviving the next 30 days of your life? Um, that's a phenomenal question because it really depends on where you're currently at. So let's talk through two scenarios. What would I personally do? Personally, if I lost my job, which meant my business went under, um, what would I do for the next 30 days? First, I would cry. Second, I would drink some wine. <laughs> maybe. Um, no, definitely not. Maybe. Of course I would. What I would really do is I would go into survival mode. I would look at my bare bones budget. I would pare down anything that's truly not a necessity. I'd push pause on my gym membership. I would mm, probably not cancel Netflix if I'm being honest, but it, probably I should, but I don't think I would. I would zero out my eating out budget. That's not a necessity. It's truly a want. I would really hone in on my grocery budget and make sure that I'm paying very, very close attention to that. Um, I would do the best that I could. I would go on the survival mode and then I would hustle my heart out. Like I know people are really adamant against not hustling. I'm a fan of it. I think there's seasons in your life where that's what you have to do. And if you just lost your job and you don't have a ton of savings, you need to do that. So I personally do have an emergency fund of six months and I've got a six month business emergency fund. I'm a little bit overly protected because I'm paranoid. I mean, hello, I'm a financial coach. I'm always seeing the worst case scenario. So I prepare overly, um, but I'd be okay. I would survive on that and I would start immediately side hustling. I would do more furniture flipping and I would do Instacart and that would bring in probably about 2000 to $2,500 per month. And I would be okay. Like I would figure it out. 
Now, if I didn't have a savings account, I would do a similar approach, take it down to a bare bones budget, cancel anything that's not necessary. I would not cancel a gym membership. I mean, COVID willing, right? Like we're assuming you could still go to the gym. So if you can, I would not cancel that. I would still go because I think your mental health is so critical during that time. And it's easy to really beat yourself up. If you lose income, sometimes that can feel like your self-worth. And so I would take care of my mental health. I would continue being very, very active and I would do Instacart. Like it's an easy way to immediately make money. I would start applying for part-time and full-time jobs. Um, Yeah. I mean, that's really what I would do. And of course, get on unemployment ASAP to make sure that I have some uh, money to cover my expenses in the meantime. That is personally what I would do. And I would also reach out to a ton of people and network and let them know that I was laid off and that I'm looking for new positions. I would hustle my heart out. Okay, the next question comes from Dominique. It says, what is everyone's best practice for tracking bills? I struggle with keeping track of all the bills monthly. Um, Great question. What you're alluding to is the need of a budget, but let's not start there. What I would start with is going through what I call the bank statement exercise. This is first and foremost, this gives you awareness to how much money you're blowing every single month. We're all blowing money. There's always room for improvement. I fully believe that. The bank statement exercise, if you haven't gone through that, go to whitneyhanson.com slash PF exercise. It's like a 15 minute video. It walks you through exactly what to do. So I would go through that first and then I would create a basic journal. I would create a spending log. And what this looks like is it can be in a notebook. It can be on your phone. It can be on your notes app. It can be like however the heck you choose. I usually would recommend doing it manual instead of an app, at least in the beginning, because it's awareness. And every single time you make a purchase, I would write that down. On August 13th, I bought a pack of gum for $1.29. Write that down. On August 14th, I went to amazon.com and I bought three shirts, write that down. So the whole goal of this is to start just like tracking your spending and giving you that spending journal. So for bills specifically, let's dive into that because that's more of your variable stuff that isn't really a bill. It's still an expense, but it's not a bill. With bills specifically, what I would recommend is printing off a calendar for the month And then going through your bank account, look through your past transactions of like 30 to 60 days and start to see when are your bills due. So on your calendar, I'd write house payments due on the first Idaho power. This is like, you know, Idaho's utility bills. Idaho power is due on the 15th. Um, That's kind of how I would approach it. And I would fill out that calendar with all of your fixed and variable expenses that you have to pay for the month. And that's a good way to get you started. Once you're ready to do that, if you do that for like 30 days, you're going to be pretty set. And then you can turn that into a budget because you have data. So then when you get ready to start a budget, there's lots of different ways to budget. Again, I don't recommend apps in the beginning. I think people rely on apps way too much. And it's almost this like security blanket that takes you off the hook. Like you feel like you don't have to check in as much because the app's doing it for you. And in the beginning, you need to be paying attention very, very closely. That's how you get true change. So when you do start to create your budget, I would just grab a notebook and I'd write down, here's what my income will be for September. Here's all of my expenses. Here's when they're due. If you're paid for two paychecks per month biweekly, create a budget. Here's this paycheck total income. Here's the expenses I have to pay from that paycheck. Here's my leftover that I can put towards my financial goals And you can start to really prioritize what bills need to be paid from what paycheck. If you're paid monthly, it's pretty easy. 
bi-weekly, that's how I would do it. And I would just write it down in a notebook. I would keep it so, so simple and foolproof and create a system that works for you. So that's how I would recommend at least getting started with all of that budgeting process. Great question. Okay, so this final question is a bit of a doozy. This one comes from Julie. Julie says, eventually, I'd like to move to another country. Right now, that's the 10 plus year plan. Aside from investing and saving normally, is there anything else I need to be doing? Will I be able to access my retirement accounts from overseas? Thanks in advance. Julie, this question was a doozy because it really... The more I research this, the more I realize it depends on the country that you're going to. But let's break down some really, really simple things and some good resources for you to be aware of when you are planning your move. Okay, first and foremost, as a U.S. citizen, you paid into Social Security most of your life. You will still have access to that unless you renounce your U.S. citizenship. Most people don't do that, but I guess it has happened. It's just not super common. So if you choose to renounce your U.S. citizenship, you no longer get Social Security. That's just something you have to, you get as a citizen, but that's about it. So just know that first and foremost. Now, the second thing to pay attention to is the tax-friendly countries. So the U.S. has a lot of treaties with other countries where they make it a little bit more tax-friendly for expats. So if you want to go retire in certain areas, um, they make it easier than others, I should say. So the thing that I found is one of the resources that will help you determine that is KPMG. It's a huge global tax accounting firm and their services are really good. They have a big report that you can kind of scroll through to see which of those countries are more friendly for U.S. taxpayers. So that was really interesting to me. A lot of the the stands, the Uzbekistan's, uh, Kazakhstan, like all a lot of the stand countries are not very U.S. friendly from that perspective. And I think it's more the U.S to them, it's not as friendly. Um, so do keep that in mind, but some of the more common places for us people to retire is Panama is the number one because it's 46% less expensive than the U S Costa Rica, um, Mexico, Ecuador, and Malaysia. Those are like the top five because the, they tend to be in more inexpensive and fairly friendly to us uh, citizens who want to go retire there. So one of the other resources I highly recommend is greenbacktaxservices.com. I found this website to be really very good information, very informational on everything you need to know from the tax standpoint. So here's my understanding. Of course, correct me if I'm wrong, as I've never lived abroad and I have not yet researched this in great depth. So correct me if I'm wrong, if this is not the case, but from my understanding, whatever country you live in, you still have to file a tax return there. And then you still have to file a tax return in the U.S. as long as you're a citizen in the U.S. So how it works from another country, I wanted to research a little bit more about like, what does that specifically look like? So let's say you decide you want to move to Costa Rica. You want to move there because the weather's good. It's tropical. It's beautiful. Cost of living is like 24, 42% lower. I can't, it was something crazy like that. So it's quite a bit less expensive for you to go live there. So you look at that and you decide you want to live there for six months. From the research I've done, if you live in Costa Rica for six months, you're considered a resident. Now you're not a citizen, you're a resident, which is very, very different. So what that means is let's pretend we're going to fast forward and say that you're officially retired. You're going to pay taxes in Costa Rica 
at whatever your income rate is. If you're working there, then you're going to be paying taxes there. If you're not, cause you're retired and you're living off of your uh, capital gains from what I'm seeing, most capital gains are exempt from tax in foreign countries, in some foreign countries, I should say. The other crazy thing is there's a 15% tax rate on dividend and interest income in Costa Rica. So there's a lot of taxes that will offset even like foreign tax credits within the U.S. So when you file your tax return, if you're living in Costa Rica, you're going to file a tax return there. You're going to file one in the U.S. and then you're going to have your tax bills. But there's lots of credits to help you offset that. Now, the next piece is to really pay attention to the visa and residency requirements. So I mentioned Costa Rica from what I was reading, six months, and then you're considered a resident. That's not necessarily normal. So every country is going to be super, super different. The other piece to look into is the foreign rules of ownership. Do you want to own a home? Do you just want to rent? Like determine what your goal is there. If you're planning on living there long-term and you really do want to buy property, make sure it's a country that's U.S. property owning friendly. So if you, as a citizen of the U.S., want to own property, some places won't even allow you to. Or even if they do allow you to, it still is at the government control. So just know what you're getting yourself into from that perspective. That just takes a lot of research on the specific country you want to go live in. The next piece to look into is health insurance. If you're living abroad, I'm going to pretty much guarantee you that most U.S. health insurance companies and policies will not cover you while you're living abroad. And sometimes that's a problem. Sometimes it's not. For a lot of these uh, countries that a lot of U.S. expats go live in, it's not necessarily super expensive to cash flow your insur your own health expenses. So a lot of times they choose to not have a health insurance plan and instead to just pay out of pocket for the health expenses because it tends to be sometimes better coverage or better quality and sometimes cheaper for you just to do it that way than paying the health insurance policies. Frustrating, I know that's just kind of what I'm seeing too is that a lot of U.S. policies will not cover you. All right, what else to say about living abroad? Your question asked if you'd be able to access your retirement accounts as a U.S. citizen. For sure, you still can. You are just subject to taxes for U.S. and for the country you live in. So you still have access to all of your retirement accounts. You still have Social Security access. If you do not renounce your citizenship, you will still qualify for that too. So it's really not too overly complicated. It just depends on if you want to buy land, what country you're hoping to retire in, all of that stuff plays a big role in it, which just requires a little bit more specificity in like which countries you're interested in and which ones are more U.S. friendly from a resident standpoint. I love this question, though. It was really fun to dive into, and it actually really got me thinking about would I want to retire somewhere else, possibly Japan. I think that would be the coolest on a tea field. Can you imagine? Oh, my heart would be so happy. That'd be pretty sweet. I looked into retiring in Denmark because that's where my ancestors are from. We're, we're Danish. And to buy property in Denmark, you actually have to be a resident or like basically show very strong interest in becoming a resident, a citizen of Denmark. And it's really hard. So unfortunately, that's probably not going to work for me unless I went for dual citizenship, which is a whole nother topic that maybe you could look into. Don't know. Also, just general good advice before you make that decision and you do narrow down a country, uh, go visit there and stay there for as long as you possibly can to see if you would actually want to retire there or if you like the idea of it. Um, that's the other big piece that I think 
a lot of people like the idea of it. And then you get there and you realize how far away you are from family and friends. And maybe the country wasn't quite what you expected. Maybe there's a lot of like political turmoil or whatever the heck it might be that um, could be an issue. So definitely consult with a tax attorney and get into some of those Facebook groups where people are expats living in other countries and get that inside scoop of what's really going on. What do they think? Um, I just think that's super important too, just in addition to setting up your finances. So keep investing, keep saving and do the research, like research your top three to four countries that you'd want to retire in. Go talk with some tax professionals on each of those different countries and see what that means for you. And yeah, I mean, it's, it seems from what I'm seeing pretty straightforward. It just depends. You have to narrow down the country you're hoping for. All right. I hope that helps. I love that question. Thank you again for sending that in. Okay, guys, that is it for today. This was a really fun Q&A. I hope you enjoyed it and I hope you learned something new. I definitely learned that, you know, Costa Rica, not too bad of a way to go. That's where I might have to go and, man, enjoy the beautiful jungle life. That country is so beautiful. That was one of my favorite trips. It was a really cool place. All right, that is it for today. Thank you so much for tuning in and I will see you on Friday for 5 Tip Friday or next week for another episode of The Money Nerd Podcast. For the ones who work hard to ensure their crew can always go the extra mile. And the ones who get in early so everyone can go home on time. There's Granger, Offering professional-grade supplies backed by product experts so you can quickly and easily find what you need. Plus, you can count on access to a committed team ready to go the extra mile for you. Call, click Grainger.com, or just stop by. Granger, For the ones who get it done.